Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. If you've been tuned in this month, then you know each Monday I've been joined by Dominic Lawson, the creator and host of the award-winning Black is America podcast. We've been listening to a select episode from the show and getting a bit of behind-the-scenes exclusives. And as this month comes to an end, I'm honored to have Dominic back with us for one more show. Welcome, Dominic. Thank you so much for having me, Sana. It's 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 been really awesome to share these stories with you over the past month. I'm kind of sad that it's kind of coming to an end, uh, but you know, as all great things, they must come to an end. And so, uh, but yeah. no, it, it's, it's been an absolute honor to share Black as America with your audience for sure. Absolutely. The honor has truly been mine. It has truly been ours. And I'm just so happy that we're able to close out this series together and closing it with the second half of Marian Anderson's story, which is truly inspirational. Um, just the ways in which she absolutely could not be denied, right? And and completely changed the landscape of, of music and entertainment. And so I'm happy that we are, are ending here um, with this second part of her story. Absolutely. You know, with that first part, you know, she faced some struggles and as we all do in life and Mm -hmm. African-Americans know uh, that struggle very well. But we learned through just her undeniable talent and with a little bit of help with, you know, the black church and just sometimes certain mentors and suitors and teachers and educators that just kind of come into our lives uh, from the time to time. It, It goes to show two things that one that sometimes you you just can't stop a rose from growing. You just can't. And and, and then two, that, you know, nobody does great things by themselves. I think that's Mm -hmm. important to highlight as well. We've always had a a teacher, a mentor, uh, people from the church or whatever uh, your walk of faith is. We've always had people that have looked out for our best interests Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, enabled to blossom uh, and to nurture a talent like Mary Anderson. So it was great to uh, tell that story in the first half and also in the second part uh, mm-hmm. that we'll hear today. Yes. And I'm so glad that you really emphasize that part that nobody does great things by themselves. Um, I think that's one of the biggest lies that we have here in the U.S. that we are, you know, self-made success stories and that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps as if we are just sole individuals. And it's just completely not true. There are so many people along the way who help us in ways that we we know of and in many ways that we'll never know. But yet, we're critical to getting us to wherever we are. And so I love that you said that. And I love the ways that, you know, in all the stories that you've crafted, you really bring in that community part. And I think that's really an important part of the work that you're doing um, with Black is America as well. Um, And the other piece that I I really, really love is how you have just woven in all these, all these different facts, all these different um, events that are happening, um, not just in the American context, but also particularly in Marian Anderson's case globally as well. I thought that was masterful the way you're contextualizing, you know, the importance of what she was doing and what was happening, particularly in, in this part of the story in Europe at that time. Absolutely. I mean, you you can't deny, you know, what was happening, you know, in in Europe and it gets further into that into uh, part two. But it it goes to what we were saying a few weeks ago that like history is not just these siloed stories Mm -hmm. uh, 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 of the past. Like they they are definitely 
uh, interconnected, right? And, and so when you bring that interconnected piece uh, together, it, it, it brings more context. It, it brings the, the original story more to life, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I think that's important um, when we tell stories of history to add that piece because it, it adds the color, it adds the flavor, it adds the light uh, to what we're listening to. And it makes us more invested in what we're learning as well. And so uh, you know, my wife is an educator and she preaches that like, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's not just the thing that we're listening to or we're learning. There's all these other pieces that surrounds it. And mm-hmm. so I really try to highlight that in Black as American. I think we did a really good job with that in uh, Marian Anderson's story. Yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. I think people will learn so much, not just about her life, but again, what was happening in the U.S., what was happening around the world, um, and why her story is is so unique and also so impactful and important for us to really truly understand outside of just who she was as as this you know beautiful singer, right? Um, and so I love that. And, you know, as you were talking, Dominic, you know, I couldn't help but make these connections as well to to you and to Black is America, the podcast. So thinking about, you know, years from now when people are listening to Black is America and and referencing, um, you know, this body of work, you know, your story will also be contextualized in what was happening, you know, in the United States, you know, during this time period, thinking about a, a 2022, a 2023, or even a 2020, and then also contextualizing, you know, your story as a podcaster um, in, you know, a longer line of, of connections that you made, a, a long list of award-winning podcasts that you have created. And so, you know, truly we are in a moment of, of, of history in the making right here as well. I, I I appreciate those words. I, I really do. But honestly, it, it, it starts from two people, actually, uh, and, and they've both been featured on Black is America. We talked earlier just now about having mentors and educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is uh, Carl Westmoreland, who is the senior historian uh, from the uh, National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. Uh, he, he passed away uh, uh, in March of last year. But one of the things that he appreciated was, you know, he has been like a you know master historian, 60 years of just telling our stories in, in Cincinnati and beyond. Uh, uh, but one of the things he appreciated was using new technologies like a TikTok like mm. a, a podcasting, like an Instagram to share our stories in a new and unique way. Right. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and he knew that, you know, while, you know, there's uh, a, a certain old school level to what he was doing and stuff like that, he appreciated that like there was a new generation uh, doing that as well. And then there's also Terry Stevens, who was here, Memphis native. Uh, I, I let her hear uh, the first three minutes of John Fox. Uh, just like I did with you as well. Mm-hmm. And, and she was like, Dominic, you're like a modern day griot, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so for those who don't know what a griot is, a griot is an African, West African storyteller who tells stories of the history from the past so that we, we won't forget them, but also to learn lessons from them, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I think of, you know, this being a, a, a legacy piece and what people will say about it years from now, I mean, honestly, I just hope first that they 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 learn just a little something that's that's mm-hmm. my first hope you know what i mean but secondly that they know just how important our history is to us uh to america 
and to the greater globe and to the to, mm-hmm. to the rest of the world because again can, can you Sana, just for a moment just imagine if black america or just black people in general didn't exist on the world like this would be a completely different place mm-hmm. right you know you know and, and that's not to mitigate or say other people from other walks of life who people who don't look like me haven't contributed Mm -hmm. uh anything at all it's just to highlight that like we contribute a lot Mm -hmm. and so i just want the next generation of uh griots and storytellers of african-american history to take this a step further i can't wait uh, you know, for whoever that is that's listening to this or not listening to this, uh, for them to take the mantle mm-hmm. and take Black history and storytelling to a completely different plateau. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that is so amazing. <laughs> I can't wait uh, for that day because that's what this is. You know, Carl Westmoreland uh, appreciated what I did, passed that torch to me. It's my job to do that for the next person. And so when you talk about legacy piece, uh, and award winning, you know, I, I know what you mean by that. And I appreciate it. But in addition to that, it's important to highlight that, like, you know, there's another generation that's going to appreciate these stories and they're going to mm-hmm. take it to a whole nother level. And I can't wait for that day to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, until then, where can people find more about you and more about Black is America? Absolutely. So you can find, uh, you know, first of all, subscribe to any major podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen uh, to your podcast as well. There's more information on blackisamericapodcast.com. And also just me personally and what I'm doing, I'm usually best uh, on LinkedIn. I usually leave uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for Black is America. But when it comes to me personally and what I'm doing professionally, LinkedIn is probably the best way to uh, uh, reach out to me. And uh, and if you ever have any uh, suggestions about Black is America or want to leave a note, uh, there's a way on our website for you to leave a recorded message. You don't just have mm. to leave a review. You can leave a recorded message and say, hey, what you did with Mary Anderson, that was that was great. Or are you like, <laughs> no, I love what you did with Mary Anderson, but we need to clear up a few things. That's okay. fine too. I I, mm-hmm. I I am fine with that. We talked about a few weeks ago, so now how Ledger Smith's family mm-hmm. reached out. It's like, we need to correct the record on just a few things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and they were super nice uh, about that. But uh, again, you can reach out to me on blackisamericapodcast.com or on LinkedIn, whatever it is your preferred uh, way. And also we always, 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 love reviews on apple podcast mm-hmm. uh we definitely love you know get those get those five star reviews on apple podcast so if you're listening to this go to apple podcast uh subscribe first and then leave us a five star review i would appreciate that very much perfect and i know one other way folks can um, keep up with you or learn a little bit more about you is you are headed to south by southwest in just a couple weeks so could you tell us a little bit more about that uh that it's it's a once in a lifetime thing for me uh again i i was just out here just trying to make some podcasts and now we just find ourselves on the south by southwest stage it's just uh just it's a it's absurd but in a good way in mm-hmm. a good way uh I, I am so looking forward to for, to uh to sharing my story and, and sharing the pot uh, world and through my through my eyes through my lens however you want to look at it uh, but also just to share the stage with some amazing creators oh goodness 
uh, you know, it's funny, uh, Manira, who's also going to be on the stage uh, as well. I, I told her when I interviewed her for the startup life, like, look, I got to interview you now before you blow up. I got to <laughs> interview you now, now before you become all big time. She's like, boy, hush, right? Because you, you know how Manira is, right? And to be on the stage with Manira, somebody who I absolutely uh, respect her craft, respect her mindset, respect her hustle, and also just respect her as a creative, you know, mm-hmm. when, when, you know, when it comes to her many projects, I am just in awe. I'm going to try to give me a, a unpaid internship from for a little <laughs> bit, uh, for sure. And then there's, then there's my girl, Nori, who I, I've just met recently, but uh, the, the work she is doing and the storytelling that she's doing is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, I'm definitely going to have to collaborate with her on some things because there's some things that I've seen on her Instagram uh, that is truly inspiring in as well. And then you have uh, Dr. Saida Grundy, who uh, who's an author as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So just just to be on this stage with these amazing people, is, it's, it's truly an honor. I, I know that's cliche, but it, it is what it is. I, it, it's an honor. Uh, but with all of that, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you, Sanai, who, who helped us uh, get to that stage. And, and, and it's it's just been uh, just truly inspiring. And I'm, I'm really honored. And so I'm looking forward to being down in Austin and, and just kind of sharing our story with some amazing creatives. Yeah, well, I'm so excited um, to put the panel together. Um, the panel is Don't Lose Your Voice, Trying to Be Heard. And so this phenomenal group of folks will be at South by Southwest. And I'm sure if you follow Dominic on LinkedIn, um, you will get some updates and some maybe some more behind the scenes. Um, and that panel includes him as a podcaster, Manira Jones as an animated series, um, Inori Moss as a documentarian, and then Dr. Saida Grundy as a moderator of the panel and it's going to be absolutely phenomenal well dominic we are sadly at the end of our time together today (laughs) and this month Um, but i am again just so excited that you would say yes and that you would share black is america um, with our audience here on wyxr Um, after the break we'll listen to part two of the marion anderson story but dominic just thank you so much uh, thank you for having me, and I'm so glad to have shared uh, Black is America this month with uh, your audience. Last time on the Black is America podcast, we see Marian Anderson rise from humble beginnings in South Philly to new heights in the operatic world. From what I understand about her church upbringing is that that was her first singing exposure. That was her first singing experience. But after a not-so-ideal concert outing in New York, Marian seeks redemption in Europe. And now for the conclusion of Marian Anderson, American Contralto, here on the Black is America podcast. We come from innovators, heroes, and royalty. We are our ancestors' greatest hope. We face many challenges, but we mold that adversity into our greatest strength. We are the glue that holds a nation together and allows it to flourish. Welcome to Black is America, the podcast that highlights little-known African-American figures and stories that make our history come to life. I'm your host, Dominic Lawson, Episode 3, Marian Anderson, The American Contralto, Part 2.
Last time, Marion had a rough performance at New York's town hall, and she was met with harsh criticism. Marion was always met with rave reviews, and any small hiccups were ultimately forgiven. But Marion is faced with the fact that if she's going to get to the next step in her career, then she has to, by any means, get more training. Giuseppe was okay, but she needed more. And Europe is where she knew she needed to go. Her first stop was in Paris, where she connected with Roland Hayes, the award-winning African-American tenor and composer living abroad at the time. This Georgia native had superb linguistic skills as he performed in French, Italian, and German. Hayes would make upwards of $100,000 a year as an artist. A younger Marion had met Roland earlier at Union Baptist, so she is definitely in good company regarding taking her career to the next level. Back in the States, Marion would always be limited regarding the training she could receive and the venues she could play. And while Europe was not exactly free of racism, it was clear that she had more opportunities to flourish than back home. So Roland would set her up real nice with teachers, dates at performance halls, and in return, Marion starts to flourish. She is getting better at her craft. She is becoming extremely proficient in different languages, especially German, and it pays off. Soon, Marion would be touring all over Europe. We're talking about a different city every night on the road for months at a time type of touring. Marion is singing in front of packed crowds, eventually even in Paris, which is arguably the center of everything in arts and culture in the world. Calm down, New Yorkers. I said arguably, okay? Anyways, Marion is also treated like a rock star. She has her name and picture in newspapers, posters, marquees, the whole nine. I thought this was pretty amazing. And men were throwing themselves at her. That part made sense. Marion was rich, famous. She was also tall, beautiful, and single. Yeah, Marion had quite a good thing going on in Europe. Charlie thought so too, but she also provides a unique perspective. When I saw that she had sang for European royalty in hundreds of concerts over Europe, it wasn't just a one-time thing. This was big. This was all the time. And she seemed, at first, more widely accepted there than in the United States. And that's baffling to me because I feel like... <laughs> Europe is just as racist, if not like the start of, of everything, but she was definitely widely accepted there. I wondered if that was purely for entertainment purposes and especially for royalty, and if they truly appreciated her as a, as a black woman or if they only appreciated her voice. I always wondered, but her voice is undeniable. So either way, you're going to appreciate who, the fullness of her because she was powerful. While touring in Europe, Marin hoped to have been managed by Saul Hurok. Hurok was a significant figure in the world of classical arts. He would go on to manage many other in the classical arts arena, including African-American dancer Catherine Mary Dunham, often regarded as the matriarch and queen mother of black dance. And during the intermission of one of her shows, 
Marion gets a surprise guest to come backstage. Once again, thanks to the Penn Libraries and their YouTube channel, here's Marion Anderson. So we went to this person who had their concert agency, and he arranged a concert for us in Paris. And Mr. Horvitz, who had been in Europe before with Wolf of Sachs, and who was then in, who was now in, uh, who was at that time in Paris, arranged a concert. Mr. came with us. He and his wife came down, and the three of us uh, stayed uh, uh, in Paris for several days and uh, had this concert at Salgavo. And I am not sure whether it was this first concert or whether it was another one. But in any case, at one of these concerts, Mr. Yurok came and came back in the intermission. Now, it will be interesting to know that before I had gone away the second time, I had tried desperately to meet Mr. Yurok. And it had been a matter of utter impossibility. I can't tell you that I went to his office and sat outside and waited to see him come in. I didn't do that. But means of trying to meet him failed. Just absolutely could not. And here all at once was Mr. Hirok backstage with Mr. Horvitz. I couldn't believe my eyes. And uh, when he said he would like to see me the next day at Mr. Horvitz's office, I don't know exactly how I got through with the rest of the program, but it finally, like all things, came to an end. And Costi, my accompanist, and I went to the office of Mr. Horvitz to meet Mr. Hurok. And Auntie Marion, at this time, is making a lot of money. Remember when I said Roland Hayes was making $100,000 a year? Auntie was out here making $250,000 a year, which is the equivalent of $5 million today. Let's put that in perspective for a minute. According to an article on businessinsider.com, the average income around this time is about $1,700. A new home is about $3,900, and a new car is about $860. So to say Mary was out here getting these coins was an understatement. But in 1935, there would be a bit of complication that would affect her earnings. Remember, this is 1935 in Europe. So around this time, while Marion's career is flourishing, the Nazi party is growing in influence across the continent. And pretty soon, they would enact the Nuremberg race laws that pretty much defined second-class citizenship. Now, if the Nuremberg race laws sound like Jim Crow 2.0, that's because, in a way, it is. And the reason for that, you ask? The Nazis studied the Jim Crow doctrine to craft their laws. You heard me correctly. The Nazis, who we have come to vilify in our history books, and rightfully so, studied Jim Crow laws in America to craft their own. That was because the Germans felt that was the best working model to craft their laws. This would affect Marion as she would now be banned to perform in Germany and Austria. She was slated to perform at the Salzburg Music Festival in Austria, which is a huge musical event held every year, even to this day. But her friends would arrange for her to sing at a ballroom in a hotel in Salzburg, thereby defying the law. 
And at that performance, there would be some prestigious guests in the audience. And one of them would be Arturo Toscanini, one of the most acclaimed musical influencers in the world at the time. He is sitting in the front row. And just like most people who would hear Marion sing, he was also moved by her talent and her presence. I wanted to get a technical sense of why Marion was so talented. What was it about her voice that makes her stand out? Lucky for me, I have such a person to explain. Here again is Charlie Edmonds, associate instructor at Indiana University. I think her voice is beautiful and it's got like this vibrato that is so steady and so, I don't know, so powerful. That, and that was, of course, like the first operatic voice that I had ever heard. And so when I sang, I tried to do that. I couldn't do it. Then I realized how difficult that is. <laughs> yeah, she was talented, powerful. Her range is amazing as well to me as a contralto because I thought, and I'm an instrumentalist, so my context is not great with this, but I thought that you had to stay like in a certain range and that you couldn't go super high or super low. But when I listened to her work, like she, her range is incredible. She could do all sorts of things <laughs> and her range was very extensive. Auntie Marion was definitely incredible. So much so that Arturo Toscanini would meet with her afterward and say to her, what I heard today, one is privileged to hear once in a hundred years. And so, of course, in Saul Hurok's hands, being great at branding and all, what he heard was Marion was deemed the voice of the century. And he would run with this telling papers and anybody who would hear him. And so that is why now today we call Marion Anderson the voice of the century. Marion is at the height of her career. The trip to Europe has more than paid off. She has fortune, fame, but more importantly, I think to her, she has the respect of the classical world. It doesn't get any better than a ringing endorsement from the Arturo Toscanini. But now it's time to come back home. It's time to go back to the United States where there were countless no's and being denied the proper training and the opportunity to sing in some of America's prestigious concert halls. You see it all the time. The idea comes from the Bible of the prophet in your own land. You basically have to go somewhere else, get credibility, and then return to get the respect and notoriety that you were looking for at home. So clearly, Marian Anderson, this now international operatic star, is about to come home to everyone begging her to sing in their concert halls and appear at different events. Surely, she will come home to be treated as the classical sensation that she is, right? I mean, right? Well, mostly. You'll see what I mean pretty soon. So 1935, she heads back to America for a set of performances. Marion even starts at New York's Town Hall, the place years before where she didn't do so well. And she is received very well. They see quickly that she is not the same Marion from years ago, more polished than ever before, while now hearing the richness in her voice. She even goes home to Philadelphia for a proper coming home performance the place where her fantastic career started. 
Marion has never been very vocal when it comes to civil rights. However, she has always understood the platform she had and would use that platform from time to time to move the cause forward. For instance, she would sing at HBCUs to promote the arts at the schools and raise money for them. And in 1939, she agreed to do a benefit for Howard University, the HBCU located in Washington, D.C. Howard has produced countless notable alumni who have been a powerhouse in government with Thurgood Marshall and Madam Vice President Kamala Harris to the arts with Felicia Rashad to Raja P. Henson and even the late Chadwick Boseman. So Marian Anderson has agreed to perform a concert on Easter Sunday on April 9, 1939. Now, if this was pre-1930, having it on campus would not have been a problem at all. But remember, Marion is now an international superstar, so they would have to find a venue that would hold the large amounts of people she would command. And in D.C., there were not many venues that could host that many people, but there was one, Constitution Hall. The 3,700-seat venue is similar to the venue she came accustomed to in Europe. But there's a slight problem. So Constitution Hall is run by the Daughters of the American Revolution, otherwise known as the DAR. The organization was formed when there was a renewed sense of patriotism, but was tired of feeling excluded from men organizations. They're the descendants of the soldiers who fought in the American Revolutionary War against the British where oppression and tyranny were imposed by the crown. I think you see where I'm going with this. As it related to Constitution Hall, the DAR had an all-white performer policy. There was an assumption that anything else or black music was inferior or subpar. And so not to draw a certain crowd, Constitution Hall implemented a policy with the assumption that it would keep things high class with a sense of dignity, you know, white. And there you have it. This Black of America podcast segment is brought to you by racism. Racism, the thing that makes irony go, are they serious? Now, after much deliberation, Mary Anderson was denied to perform at Constitution Hall. In a press release, they would cite municipal law as their reason. However, there was no municipal law or national law telling them they had to do this. The DAR was a private organization and could have made this happen if they wanted to. But they decided not to. Think about that for a minute. The highest paid singer in the world and deemed the voice of the century is denied to perform simply because of the color of her skin. Yeah. Here enters Walter White, the head of the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, or NAACP. And he couldn't let this go. White, a fan of Mary Anderson for a long time, would see this disrespect and use it as fuel for action. Walter White was highly connected to many dignitaries and government officials. This may be due in large part to him being fair-skinned and often passing as white. Earlier in his career, White would use this to his advantage as he would infiltrate white supremacist groups to investigate the lynchings of black Americans. He has a fascinating story that I invite you to check out. 
Go to blackisamericapodcast.com and Marian Anderson's part two show notes. I'm not kidding when I say Walter White had quite the network. Because in January of 1939, one of the first calls that he made was to the White House. Because the DAR had a very famous member attached. First Lady at the time, Eleanor Roosevelt, is regarded throughout American history as a champion of women's rights and civil rights for African Americans. So it would make sense that Walter White calls her. He asked her to resign from the DAR. This would send the message that the First Lady would not tolerate such discrimination. She declines, but she said that she would lend her name to the cause. But seeing how Marion was treated over the next two months, for instance, seeing the D.C. school district denying the contralto the opportunity to perform at an all-white school, I guess Miss Roosevelt had enough. And in February of 1939, Eleanor Roosevelt makes a statement in her national column and sent a resignation letter to the DAR. Here's an excerpt of that letter. Quote, I am in complete disagreement with the attitude taken in refusing Constitution Hall to a great artist. You have set an example which seems to me unfortunate, and I feel obliged to send in to you my resignation. You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way, and it seems to me that your organization has failed. End quote. There was not much interest in this story nationally, but all that changed when the First Lady of the United States makes this statement. Papers from all over the country begin to denounce the DAR. And from this, a unique idea presents itself. Harold Ickes, Secretary of the Interior, Saul Hurrock, Marion's manager, and Walter White still want her to perform on Easter Sunday. And on April 9, 1939, Marion Anderson would do just that. But this time, from a much larger venue. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're speaking to you from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the nation's capital, from which point the National Broadcasting Company brings you a song recital by the gifted Marian Anderson, considered by music critics throughout the world as possessing a most outstanding contralto voice. This concert is presented under the auspices of Howard University of Washington, D.C. Marian's life until this point has not been the easiest. Her father passed away, being thrust into poverty, being told no at every turn from the Philadelphia Music Academy to Constitution Hall. But none of that matters now, because here, on Easter Sunday, this black woman was about to have the attention of an entire nation. The United States Park Police officially estimate the attendance at over 75,000. Not to mention the millions listening on the radio. Even though Marion has performed worldwide, she admits she is a bit nervous. Here again, is Marian Anderson, courtesy of the Penn Libraries. I had such a feeling that I had never had before. The only thing that came near to it was the time when Etruscanini came backstage in Southport. My heart was throbbing to the point that I could scarcely hear anything. Before the concert, even Secretary Ickes would have a few words. When God gave us this wonderful outdoors and the sun the moon and the stars, he made no distinction of race or creed or color. We are grateful to Miss Marian Anderson for coming here to sing to us today. When we decided to create the Black is America podcast, 
It was to highlight people and stories that showed the story of America could not have been written without Black America. But it is also to highlight that we contribute to this country because it belongs to us too. And I believe Marian Anderson shared this sentiment, which is why the first song she sang on Easter Sunday at the steps of all places, the Lincoln Memorial, was a particularly interesting one as Auntie Marion stakes her claim in American history. Marion would sing other songs that day, a Schubert piece, even Negro spirituals. But for me, this was the most important song because as this black woman is singing my country tis of thee, what she is really saying is that this is our country. We have bled, we have cried, and we have died for it. And that won't be changing anytime soon. Marion would go on to perform around the world and across the country. And I guess a particular organization got their act together because between 1943 and 1964, she would perform at Constitution Hall multiple times. And if you go on the DAR's website, there's even a special section for Marian Anderson. We have a link to that section if you want to check it out in the show notes of this episode or on our website, blackisamericapodcast.com. And one day, she would be presented the opportunity of a lifetime. I saw Mr. Ben, and there he came over and spoke. And without any ceremony at all, he said, would you be interested in singing with the Metropolitan? And on January 7th, 1955, Marian Anderson would become the first African-American to sing with the famed Metropolitan Opera. When the curtain rose on her scene, before she could even sing a note, she was welcomed with a roaring applause. If her singing at the Lincoln Memorial stamped her place in American history, then her singing with the Metropolitan Opera would cement her as a musical legend. Not bad for a little black girl from South Philly. From there, Mary Anderson would receive commendation after commendation. She sang for both Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy's inaugurations, receives 24 honorary doctorates, be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the very first one, the Congressional Gold Medal, and even the United Nations Peace Prize for her work in civil rights. And speaking of civil rights, she would even sing at the March on Washington. She would also become part of pop culture, appearing in the very popular game show, What's My Line? a show where the game uses celebrity panelists to question contestants in order to determine their occupation. And they will also have a weekly celebrity mystery guest, which they were blindfolded for. And on this day, the panelists would not be able to guess this week's celebrity guest. Are you Barbara Streisand? <laughs> <laughs> no. And that's 10 down and no more to go. 
And you may now... Oh, oh you're going to be unhappy. Unmask and meet Miss Marion Anderson. <laughs> Marion would go on to retire in 1965. Throughout Marion's career, especially in the later years of her life until her death in 1993, Marion was an advocate of championing the next generation of artists, singers, and musicians, especially those who look like her. They would ultimately speak to her legacy. I got my bachelor's in music education at the University of Tennessee. And then I went on to get my master's actually here at Indiana University at the Jacobs School of Music. And that was in music education as well. Then I went back to Knoxville, where the University of Tennessee is, um, to teach at a middle school. Here again is Charlie Edmonds. And she goes on to share with us her experience as a music teacher in East Tennessee. And that was my pride and joy. I didn't want to go back there at first and I spent like a whole year mad that I was back at my like college town but teaching those babies and <laughs> it was a predominantly black school and if you know anything about East Tennessee there aren't many black people at all there's still a whole lot of sundown towns and just rapid racism <laughs> in case you were not aware sundown towns talked about in the recent HBO series Lovecraft Country were towns where if you were black in one of these towns you better be inside before it turned dark because there was only trouble awaiting you. Here's Charlie again. To be able to be in like the one black community that's in East Tennessee and be able to build a band program there was really inspiring for me. And it's helped me now in my PhD work where I'm back now in Indiana doing this work and I get to do research on disparities and lack of funding and resources and teacher preparation for black students and teaching in predominantly black schools. And it's something that hasn't really been explored that much in music education yet, especially not by a black researcher, because there aren't many of us yet in music education at the research level. I was curious about the disparities and lack of resources Charlie spoke of. <sighs> Where do I even start? That many, um, huh? <laughs> yeah. Just to start off with, in a band program, to think about all of the things you need, it's an expensive thing to do. And so when I got there, there were, there had been a lot of turnover with teachers and the band directors specifically. They hadn't really been able to keep anybody for a long time. I think the longest that somebody had been there for a while was like four years. And the, there was a lot of distrust there because of teacher turnover. And then with instruments, like, there wasn't a culture of buying instruments, of investing in the arts or anything like that. And so I had to really ask the district, how do we get instruments? What do we do? All of these things, when I came just to teach and the schools and the, everybody else in the district gets to go to their school and just teach because their parents are already going to buy instruments. They're going to buy reeds and mouthpieces and put their kids in lessons and really invest in them. When I had to start, and most directors that start at black schools have to start at the baseline level of, okay, let's get supplies, let's get resources, and get instruments in the kids' hands. And we're still expected to perform at the same level of everybody else in the district with not the same starting place. And with without additional teachers, a lot of the directors had two directors, or they were able to hire additional instructors through their budget or through other supports that they had in place already. We didn't have any of that. It was just me <laughs> and the high school director who was helping me a lot. And there were just so many disparities. 
going to the like the professional development that we would have to have every once in a while in the district and hearing the other directors talk about the student teachers they had the university didn't send student teachers to us and I remember when I was student teaching at UT I had to beg to go to one of the black elementary schools to student teach they never had placed anybody there they didn't want to they didn't see that as valuable and so when I got to this the same community to teach in I never received any student teachers there were never any there was never anybody visiting my school to train their teachers which means at the university level music education majors aren't working with black children they aren't seeing disparities they aren't exposed to that so they get painted this like rosy image of what teaching is like and they search for those schools that are like ideal instead of trying to teach at schools that really need help there were just so many things and being like the only black female director in the East Tennessee like band orchestra association there was disparities there just because decisions that were made for everybody else's programs and so nobody was considering what we needed at our school even when it came to figuring out where auditions were going to be held for honor bands and stuff like that and you're familiar with Maryville College a lot of things got held in Maryville which for my school in Knoxville it was in East Knoxville and Mm -hmm. that's a long way to Mm -hmm. Maryville yes it is and so to hold auditions always out of the county, me asking, hey, my kids can't get there. Can we hold auditions somewhere else? And they'd be like, it works for us. And that was it. Even just getting the kids to the audition was something to overcome. And so Charlie is doing her part with the program she is developing. Currently, I'm working on something I'm calling Pocket, which is about playing in the pocket, which is like our natural thing that we do as black people. And it highlights our natural like inclination towards our own music, but it's a beginning band resource. So what I'm working on is a method system. It's an online database of arrangements that I've done of black music that teach the same concepts as the method book, but using our music. So those three pitches in hot cross buns, you could play Almost, well, adding two more pitches of the concert B-flat scale, you could play Lean on Me, like sometimes in our lives we all have pain. It goes up and down the first five pitches of the concert B-flat scale, uh, but it's Black music instead. And so I've written almost 100 arrangements now of Black music and watered it down, not watered it down, but (laughs) provided to the beginning band level so that directors have something to pull from that's Black. And so that students, no matter what they're bringing, are get exposed to black music and get exposed to to the groove of playing in the pocket, which is why I call it pocket. So I'm working on that. That should be launched hopefully by December. It'll be a subscription service for um, for districts, for band directors, for parents, whoever wants to subscribe. But there are different pricing levels for it. And then the play along tracks. Hopefully, working on it will be recorded by HBCU bands. And so the students get to play along with HBCU bands, but get to play like songs at the fundamental level and really feel like they're doing something cool while learning the instrument and getting tutorials and all sorts of things from this from this website and this experience. And as Charlie does her part to create the next generation of young artists that will impact American culture, she reflects back on what Marion did for her generation and what that means to her. Obviously, her singing and performance legacy is cemented. Like, we have heard that so many times, and it's, and I think that will continue. But 
her philanthropic work and her work in music education, I think still needs to get out there. And the thing that inspired me or still gives me inspiration for the program that I was telling you about with Black Music and Beginning Band, a lot of that is inspired by the things she did for children. And so when we talked about Snoopy Cat, that children's album that she recorded, that was in 1963, as I'm looking, yes, 1963. And she mixed in storytelling. There was her speech on there, like she was talking about, she was telling stories, narrating a story, and then she would interject songs sung by her. And then she also provided opportunities for the music honor to be composed by female composers. And she was just opening all these doors <laughs> just through recording a children's album. And I just, it inspires me to use what I've got and use my experiences to help children to figure out what type of doors we can open. And as those doors continue to open, Black America will not only continue to flourish, but also contribute to the arts and culture of this country. And when you think about it, this country depends on it because it sets us apart and influences other parts of the world, from the techno music out of Europe to the K-pop sound in Korea. And while it would be Marian Anderson who would open those doors for many, her musical career would cement her as one of the best to ever do it in classical music. Her willingness to endure poverty and use her platform to repel both fascism abroad and racism at home by simply remaining true to herself reminds us that sometimes, as A. Philip Randolph would say, freedom is never given, it is won. And through it all, Mary Anderson won with grace dignity, and a talent that was undeniable. And that is why Marian Anderson is truly the voice of the century and America's contralto. The Black is America podcast, a presentation of Al's education, was created and it is written, researched, and produced by me, Dominic Lawson. Executive producer, Kendall Lawson. Cover art was created by Alexandria Eddings, of Art Life Connections. Special thanks to Charlie Edmonds, Associate Instructor and PhD student at Indiana University, Terry Stevens, Educator and Historian, and also Marion Anderson via the Penn Libraries, who posted her interviews on their YouTube page. And lastly, the New York Times, which was critical in research for this episode. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe the Black is America podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. For a full transcript of this episode and other resources, go to www.blackisamericapodcast.com. There, you can read our blog, leave us a review, or you can leave a voicemail where you can ask a question or let us know what you think of the show, and we may play it on an upcoming episode. You can also hit the donation button if you like what you heard which helps us create more educational content like this. Finally, thank you so much for listening to the Black is America podcast, where our history comes to life. Until next time.